Spring is in the air, and we're back with another episode of The Goods, a film podcast. This is Brian. And Dan. And we're here, finally, past the end of Time Loop Month. We have journeyed into new territory. It was more like Time Loop Month and a half. But we hope you've enjoyed our deep dive into that subgenre, as well as our special episode the 25th uh, award special slash retrospective that uh, talked a little bit about who we are and why we do what we do but now it's on to something new as we head into our next batch of 25 episodes because this is a return of a feature i introduced back in our fourth episode long time back five or so months ago i called this feature violent ends and it's where we take a look at two films that have very similar premises and starting points but arrive at drastically different endings as the story unfolds today we're going to be taking a look at two stories of eccentric teachers at prestigious private schools it's Dead Poet Society from 1989 and School of Rock from 2003. Are you ready for a, a mind-blowing fact here? Please blow my mind. 1989 is closer to 2003 than 2003 is to today. Oof. I believe it. I mean, so the we'll get into it in a moment, but... Uh, Dead Poet Society takes place in 1959, so 30 years before the movie came out. It's kind of a Back to the Future thing. I mean, Back to the Future 2 came out in 1989. But, yeah, 32 years from 1989 to today. So we're just as far in the future from that date as they are looking back. Had you... Had any exposure to these films before our analysis here? I'd never seen Dead Poets Society, and I had seen School of Rock a handful of times right around when it came out, but it had been a very long time. And I'm not even sure I had seen it start to finish. It was one of those movies that kind of got played on loop at my house with all my brothers. There's a couple of things in here that we still quote every now and then. And one thing that my brother says a lot, like if you criticize him, he'll be like, hey, did have in my bow tie? And I did not, either did not know or forgot that that was a reference to School of Rock. I knew it was a silly thing from something, but it was a somewhat important movie for my family for a while. And um, so it had a little bit of uh, fond memory for me, but it was definitely not very sharp, so it was really fun to revisit it. Yeah, I remember watching School of Rock when it first came out, shortly thereafter. I think we rented it, and it's got Miranda Cosgrove in it. Before This is like the year before Drake and Josh. I think Drake and Josh started in 2004. Yeah, I, that that tracks, because that would, would have been shortly before we got into uh, the Drake and Josh show. 
and she did seem about as young as she did at the start of that. And of course, this now means that we have completed two thirds of the iCarly trifecta. We have Jeanette McCurdy in The Last Day of Summer, and now Miranda Cosgrove here. I looked up Nathan Cress, I think his name is. Yeah, we need to find an early Freddy film. <laughs> There's unfortunately not much of him. Interestingly, his most recent credit is a short film directed by Jeanette McCurdy that I tried to find on streaming online but could not find, but I, I would definitely watch. It's like where she accidentally murders someone on her wedding day or something like that. Oh, wow. And my exposure to Dead Poets Society, I saw it in college. I think I had a teacher who mentioned the whole Carpe Diem thing. And there's also an episode of Community that makes fun of it which i think i i think i randomly saw when community was on tv back before i read your earn this coverage and decided to marathon the whole show a few years later um this was just like a random episode that i caught where there's a teacher influenced by robin williams's performance in the movie i really want to go back and watch that now that i've seen this and kind of have my own opinions of it and if I recall, it's somewhat an homage and somewhat a parody. Right. I, I, I think McHale, Joel McHale's character, is just going off on how trite it is. Just all these platitudes that he's spewing, trying to sound wise. Right. And it's not until he gets spontaneously surprised by, I think, Britta kissing him to pay him back or something like that. I don't know. But yeah, I remember that. That was early on as it was still getting its footing, but I definitely want to go watch it now that I've seen this. But the combination of that episode and my teacher mentioning it inspired me to track it down and I watched it on, I don't know, Putlocker or something. One of those websites that you watched movies on and, and, and maybe some people still do it, but when streaming was young. The Wild West of it where you just go to some site and it would have a you click a play button and then you have to close 16 ads and then it would stream the whole movie yeah you'd hope that one of the five play buttons that you clicked was the correct one to actually start the movie and not self-destruct your computer <laughs> so i wanted to take a look at each of our films kind of return to the playbook established in our first violent ends and then we'll take a look at the commonalities and differences between the two films we'll do some third grade style comparing and contrasting so i know that um well dead poet society definitely earned some good press when it initially came out it got the oscar for best screenplay and nominations for quite a few others uh nominated for best director best picture and robin williams got a nom for best actor I don't think School of Rock got quite that many Oscar nominations, but it was pretty well received. And this is another Linklater film. Our second, I think. That's right. One of our early episodes, we took a look at Everybody Wants Some. And I think I have to say that of the Linklater movies I've seen, not to spoil my rating to come at the end of our show... But I think this is probably my favorite Linklater movie that I've watched. Just because it's a little more plot heavy. 
than some of the others I've watched. So for me, it's debatably a quote unquote true link later to me. I was actually surprised. It was maybe a year ago when I realized that this was directed by Linklater because I think of him and the stuff that he writes, his auteur style stuff, the before movies, Dazed and Confused, Everybody Wants Some, Boyhood, where it's kind of got a very distinct pace and feel, whereas this is very much different from that. Um, but he did, he has directed a handful of movies that were not written by him, obviously, including this one. It's actually written by Mike White, who I have become quite familiar with recently. He was the showrunner and writer for a show I've mentioned multiple times on this podcast called Enlightened. It was an HBO dramedy from the mid-early 2010s that I think is pretty close to being a masterpiece. And so I'm pretty fond of him, and I think his adeptness at writing, although it's very different material, shows here. And I also think that Linklater's style comes through more than I would have guessed. And I'll, I'll have some specific thoughts on that as we get to places where I kind of noticed that. But as far as where it stands in terms of all of the films directed by Richard Linklater, this is probably top five, probably number four, five, or six. I would really need to think through out of the ones I've seen. And I've, I've missed a couple of his, so... I'll, I'll leave that as my my teaser before we get to the uh, the scoring, but um, not definitely not top of the hill for Linklater for me. All right, all right, all right. <laughs> and Mike White, he's also in School of Rock, right? Yeah, he's the roommate, the kind of pathetic one who's dating Sarah Silverman. And similarly, in Enlightened, he also plays a pathetic sad sack who is kind of a pushover and colleagues slash friends with the protagonist so that was kind of funny for me yeah his character name in school of rock is ned schneebly so your mileage with silly names might vary but it's a apt name for his character it's a it's a nebbish character with a nebbish sounding name and jack black is very good at saying schneebly so that is half the fun of that name but to appreciate the commonalities between these films, we got to take a look through their story. So let's do that now, if you're game. Sounds good. Dead Poet Society, as I mentioned, takes place in 1959. I like a movie where we see the 50s. Reminded me a little bit of the 1954 setting of The Founder, or the 1955 setting that we get in Back to the Future 1 and 2. Yeah, it's interesting, though. I kind of find that there's a double-edged sword on this one for that because I continually forgot it was the 50s for the first half of the movie until we got into some of the more 50s-specific things. It's like a classic Ivy-walled New England prep school, which I would imagine basically looks the same as it looks today. They still wear the uniforms, they have the clean haircuts... Um, there's sort of a regal old fashioned look about all the buildings. So I, I feel like, although there are some moments where it has some of that 50 setting stuff, it didn't really pop as 1959 for, for much of it for me. That's a great point because their whole thing is conformity. Everybody's wearing a uniform. And so it's really hard to place what time it is. If 
you had asked me before I watched it this week when it took place. I wouldn't have been able to tell you. It's not until they sneak off to a public school and you see all the Biff Tannins and Lorraine Baineses that you would be able to place it in time. Yeah, we'll talk a little more about that. I do think some of the thematic stuff also fits well with the Leave it to Beaver boomer 50s. True. But if you were just thrust into the opening scene of this movie, it would be more difficult to tell the time by your surroundings. Agreed. Because where the bulk of the movie takes place is at a school called Welton, which is a finishing school for boys. Get them trained up to take their place as the next generation of the elite. And it's an all-boys school and very white and they have this long, prestigious tradition of getting everybody ready for college. Early on, we get introduced to our cast of boys that we will be primarily focused on. Kind of the, the central star among the boys around whom the others orbit is Neil Perry, played by Robert Sean Leonard. Now, if you haven't heard that name... He would go on to play Wilson, the sidekick doctor on House. And the first time I watched this movie, House was big and still airing. So immediately that's what I pinned him as. But he is a popular student starting his senior year. And he's just been paired with a new student who's just joined the school and is going to be Neil's roommate. The new student is named Todd, and he's played by Ethan Hawke, who has popped up in at least a couple other Linklater movies, I believe. Several. I mean, he has a trilogy where Ethan Hawke stars, and he's been in at least one or two others. He's the dad in Boyhood, I know. Right. So, certainly a longtime collaborator. I think just being in Boyhood qualifies you to be a long-term link later collaborator because it took 12 years to make <laughs> i see here you made a note about a separate piece dan would you like to elaborate on that sure so as i was watching this i was brought back to a separate piece a very similar vibed novel and i think it's been adapted at least once into film that has a lot of just similarities in setting it's a all boys prestigious boarding school that one was actually published in 1959 the year this takes place although a separate piece takes place in world war ii and that's kind of more directly a factor in the story but to me that's like the prominent story that i've read that has this sort of like repressed boys uh uptight boarding school in this fashion and it, it made me think of that a lot. And uh, spoilers for, I'm about to spoil both A Separate Piece and Dead Poets Society. They both end with a tragedy. Violent ends. That's what we're here to talk about today. And I'm glad you brought this up because I'm going to throw in some other boarding school stories in the mix as well. I remember having to read a separate piece for an English class at one point. Man, 
the kid in that the like protagonist kid really got my goat reading that he's he he graded on me i I need to like read it again and and write up my notes but uh, i just remember the story of that being that he meets this new kid who comes in this new guy who's like perfect he's like this perfect boy spirit and the protagonist has conflicting feelings about that and it's like very gay Uh, that was my take on it i don't know It, it was like i love this new kid but i'm also jealous of him and so i'm gonna knock him out of a tree and kill him on the steps of the boarding school and so i don't know I, I wasn't sure what we were supposed to take away from it but that's what i got i'll be honest i don't think i've read it since high school so i don't remember too much of the specifics except that there was the setting and the tone reminded me of this so i, I too would be interested in revisiting it and maybe we could choose the adaptation of it at some point and that could be our our battlegrounds on it alternatively we'll just do an episode where we have a book club <laughs> But here in Dead Poet Society, we meet a few of the faces who are going to be important in our story. Ethan Hawke as Todd. He's the new kid. He's the Gus Griswold, if you will, uh, to throw recess into the discussion. Not not really pertinent, but I just want to name drop as many school stories as I can. <laughs> uh, but Todd is shy, and he's really averse to speaking in front of crowds. But Neil welcomes him into the fold, and we meet Neil's other friends. There's a boy called Charlie Dalton, who's from a rich family, who has ties to the school from way back. There's a guy named Knox Overstreet, and a kid with red hair named Richard Cameron. There's a couple others. There's a tall kid. There's a nerdy kid. Gotta fill your archetype boxes. Right. Although I will say that, I don't know, maybe I wasn't paying close enough attention. I was tidying as I was watching, so I was paying pretty close attention, but, you know, there's a difference between maybe sitting in front of a big screen and sitting in front of a small screen as you're kind of doing something else with your hands, but they all kind of bled together for me, and they all looked kind of similar, and in particular, it bugged me how similar Ethan Hawke and um neil perry what, what's the name of that actor again robert sean leonard right how similar they looked like three times i was like which is this the new guy or is this the guy with the mean dad and i finally figured it out but um that's kind of the again the downside of having this setting with all these white boys of same complexion all with brownish hair except the one redhead and they're all in uniforms and exactly yeah you do get to know them more as the film goes. But for me, that was initially a, a downside. Although I, I do think it, they come out a little bit eventually. Yeah, that's a potential stumbling block. But some get more of a, an arc than others. Some get plot business. Right. But when the school year starts out, all of these guys have class with a new English teacher named John Keating. And this is where Robin Williams comes in. Keating once attended the school himself, so it's a welcome back Cotter situation. He has ties to the institution going way back, but he is unconventional. 
He starts out class on day one, making his mission statement, Carpe Diem, seize the day. And he encourages the boys to, you know, squeeze all the juice out of life. Find your own individual voice and don't do what anybody else is doing. Do your own thing. Yeah, it's kind of a blend of a few different ideas. One of it is is to live passionately and to live life to its fullest. And one of it is to be different. And to me, those are potentially related, but not necessarily exactly related concepts. So it's kind of interesting. Carpe Diem is more about like live the most of today, which to me is not intrinsically a message of nonconformity. I think that's right. The first lesson we see is all about Carpe Diem, and then subsequent classes go more into you need to embrace nonconformity. Right. But Carpe Diem in and of itself is like, well, some of the other works that he quotes say, gather ye rosebuds while ye may. You could say you're only young once. You could say YOLO. <laughs> This is a sentiment with deep roots, and I looked into it some on Wikipedia, and it's kind of a rabbit hole. In the movie, is depicted as, like, this new idea, almost. Like, he is this trendsetter. But Carpe Diem apparently has a place on college campuses going back to, like, the Middle Ages. Like, Oxford in 1200, there are clubs singing Carpe Diem songs. And it kind of sounds... Like it was just an excuse to get drunk. <laughs> you know, it's it's the highbrow thing that college students say when what they want to do is go party. I can buy that. That actually makes a lot of sense to me. It's, it's interesting that you your interpretation was that this was like a new idea. One interesting trait of the movie is that basically all of the poems that Keating cites are all very famous like English canon poems. It's not very boundary pushing in the selection. And I think part of that is the point like, oh, this idea is like an eternal one that men have always been drawn to. But um, it's definitely like, I, I don't know, you could have done this differently where he's like more directly a beatnik and he's kind of citing more modern stuff or something. But he definitely always went the classical route. But some of the other things he has the students do are a little more avant-garde, a little more revolutionary. He does things like making them stand on their desks to see the world from a new angle. And he does this thing where he has them all walk around outside. And over time, they all kind of fall into a pattern where they're all doing the same thing. And he breaks in and says, no, you go this way and you go that way and find your own style of walking. I think Peter Weir, the director, his two biggest strengths in this movie, one is just capturing the kind of autumnal beauty of this New England landscape and really kind of letting you soak in the setting. And you get kind of these long, beautiful shots of birds flying and trees and lakes and stuff. And the second thing is whenever they are all the boys together doing something kinetic. It's exciting and energetic. And I really love these scenes where 
they're kind of marching around together or tearing out the pages of the book. And I just found a lot of verb and energy in those scenes. I agree. There's a scene where like each one has to read a line of poetry and kick a soccer ball. And there's like the fog of their breath. There's lots of fields and and wide open scenes in this movie. That's one way that Keating is breaking away from what the other teachers are doing is he does a whole bunch of stuff outside. He's always bringing the, the students out onto the grounds. And it's uh, an excuse, as you said, to have nice cinematography out here in Vermont. Oh, and Keating gradually becomes popular with the students through these lessons. He gets carried around on their shoulders at one point, which is something we're going to see in both films. Spoilers. Uh, both of the teachers crowd surf at one point. <laughs> That's a good connection. I didn't see that one. But I got to say that this pushing of nonconformity is maybe a dubious lesson. We can see that grating early on in a school where kind of the whole point is that everyone is uniform. And as the school year goes on, the students delve into Keating's own past with the school. They dig out an old yearbook and they find out that when he was a student, he was involved with something called the Dead Poets Society. So, hey, there's the title of the movie. <laughs> he said the thing. And Keating shares that this was a secret club where he and his friends would meet in a cave on the school grounds and read old poetry to each other. This seems like kind of a weird idea to me. I don't know. Would you have been part of this club, Dan? So that's an interesting question. I think if my friends were doing it, I would have done it too. And I think I would have had a lot of joy in it. I'm not sure I would have really gotten the point. I think I would have liked the camaraderie element quite a bit. Cause I think that's kind of a big part of it is like they're banded together on this secret shared mission. I think now the person I am now, this is kind of a weird thing to say. If I was the person I am now and I was 16, I would join the shit out of this club for sure. I would, I would love to, to be a part of something where you are sticking it to the man. That's another thing we will see repeated and also sharing a love of great literature and living in the moment. I'm a little more comfortable in some of those themes than I was when I was 15. What, what about you? Do you think you would join? So I think you made a really good point that it's about the camaraderie. I was thinking back to my quote unquote fraternity experiences in college. I was part of a music fraternity so I think it's a similar thing where we were supposedly dedicated to these ideals of music that were set down in the 1800s when the society was formed. And this film does a good job of capturing the dual nature of a fraternity as this kind of like flowery thing. Like it's dedicated to high ideals and... Yet at the same time, what it's really about is bros being bros and hanging out and, you know, heading out into the night and drinking. And it's it's those two sides, that dichotomy captured in one entity. So you're you're supposedly striving for high minded ideals, but you're also 
broing out in a cave. I mean, I don't know. I'm not sure I agree that it's necessarily high-minded ideals. It depends on what you mean by high-minded. It's like about living in the moment and like living with passion, which I guess you could call a high-minded ideal, I guess, but kind of more about sh- shaking those those repressive forces from the the boarding school and from from on high. Okay, sure, but the way that they do it is they take this old book and they're quoting from Yeats and Thoreau and how how counterculture is that really? <laughs> That's a good point. Kind of goes back to what I was saying about Keating in general, how he's both counterculture and also very literary canon. It's kind of uh, kind of both ways. I will say they get some fun interpretations out of it. There's this one poem I, I didn't identify it. I was thinking of looking it up where they kind of read it and then they start like beating. I don't know if it's an actually a drum or they're like kind of making a kind of Congo dance with it. And it was another one of these examples of when you have all these guys together doing something exciting that I think is pretty well directed and it, it builds. I agree. As the year goes on, they start pushing the envelope a little bit more and getting a little more fluid with the structure of their meetings. So they start telling ghost stories and stuff, and eventually somebody... This is this is later on, but somebody brings girls into the cave. And eventually, just a little taste of the beatnik poetry. Charlie gets really into the counterculture aspect of it. He starts putting on, like, war paint makeup and he brings a saxophone and this is when i recalled that 1959 you know what movie we've covered came out in 1959 dan what a bucket of blood Ah. which was about beatniks there you go getting our beatnik film club in that's right it's it's something that maybe at this point maxwell brock would have wanted to join in (laughs) he would have been a great member of the dead poet society in fact, headcanon, one of these guys grows up to be, maybe Charlie, let's say Charlie grows up to be Maxwell Brock. And we get some character arcs focusing on the most prominently featured students as they take this influence of the club and interpret Carpe Diem in their own ways. So like I said, Charlie Dalton, he gets really into the counterculture and embraces that aspect of pushing boundaries. He insists that people start calling him Nuwanda. And I don't know if that's supposed to be like a Native American name or an African name or what's going on there, but he keeps saying, I'm Nuwanda. Yeah, that that was a funny gag. I wanted them to push it even further into parody because it kind of towed the line of parody on how much we should be mocking this guy as opposed to embracing him as he embraces his own inner spirit. And of course, Todd is shy, so we get the sense that his arc is going to be, he starts speaking out more, kind of encouraged dually by Keating and Neil. Like he, he gets forced to speak before the class Keating makes him do this exercise where he's like got a jacket over his head and he's got to compose poetry under pressure with this jacket on his face. That's right. That was when we really saw Ethan Hawke acting the way we know that Ethan Hawke can act. He was awesome there. 
He was only 19 when this was filmed, although his character, I suppose, was a few years younger than that, so that's not too surprising. But he, he was already great here, and, and he he's someone who I, I can't think of a thing where I've watched a movie and he has not made the film better. Uh, he, he's reliable. One of the arcs that was kind of strange to me, although I liked it because we got to see the 50s trappings, is what happens with Knox. So he's portrayed, at least I think we're supposed to see him as this kind of dopey sweet guy. And early on in the movie, he goes to visit a family friend, like a friend of his dad's. And I think this is the father of a football player who goes to a public school in the same general area but when Knox goes to visit this family friend's house the football player's girlfriend is there and Knox like immediately imprints on her <laughs> he he it's kind of the thing where Aang comes out of the iceberg in Avatar mm. and just immediately he's in love with Katara <laughs> Like, the first girl he ever saw, that's got to be the girl for him. And she doesn't really have a say in the matter. So as I was watching this, I was reminded of basically this exact plot thread in another movie, a worse movie, St. Elmo's Fire, also from the 80s, where Andrew McCarthy is in the role of the guy who basically just decides that this woman that he barely knows and is infatuated with is going to be his girlfriend whether she wants to or not and spends the whole movie stalking her and chasing her down. And it's funny because the woman is played by none other than Andy McDowell, who I spent a significant amount of time complaining about in our Groundhog Day uh, time loop episodes. Yeah, we already know if Andy McDowell is there, that's not going to go over great for Dan. <laughs> then Neil's plot business involves the fact that he has a really strict dad introduced at the start of the movie who has big plans for Neil's future. He wants Neil to go to Harvard and ideally medical school. And this is something that he's going to harp on more as the story goes on. But, I mean, Neil is seems to be thriving in his current environment. He He's got a bunch of friends, and it sounds like he gets top marks everywhere. He seems to be the the wunderkind. Everybody loves Neil. It's an interesting take on the character, both by the writing and the acting. We will ultimately come to see this character as somewhat tortured by the conclusion of the film. But he's not really played that way. He's played kind of as a chipper All-American. He's kind of a bright light to everyone around him. And part of that is the way that he's written. And part of that is just that Robert Sean Leonard has kind of this energy to him. That, And I think it's a good acting job. He has some really great scenes where he, he's acting really well. But it's peculiar. I read somewhere, and I haven't seen this confirmed, but that River Phoenix was considered for this role. And man, would that have been a different movie having this much more serious, intense actor with like much less of a kind of light energy about him 
playing Neil, I don't know. It, it was interesting. And I kind of was on the fence about whether I liked the approach that they took with this character. That is really interesting. I didn't know that about uh, River Phoenix. Because something... I, I watched this with my mom. And she was wondering if Neil is supposed to be gay. Well, I wasn't quite sure what it is possible to read from the text apart from, you know, there might be subtext. I don't think there's clear evidence one way or the other. Uh, I mean, it's an all-boys school, so in a sense, it's like being on a submarine or something. Like, what are you going to do? I I don't know. (laughs) I don't know how to read it. I was going to pull this one out on you because... I very much read it as him being gay. In fact, I think that at the end of the movie, it doesn't quite become text, but it comes close to being text in both the way that the relationship between him and Ethan Hawke kind of evolves and becomes very affectionate and the way that Ethan Hawke is kind of devastated in a certain way. And I don't know how Robert Sean Leonard gives Ethan Hawke kind of the doe eyes as Ethan Hawke is spouting his romantic improvised poetry. And to me, the thing, I don't know if this should go here. It should probably go later in it. Um, But let's actually, let's complete that thought when we get to the big twist in this film, because I really want to examine the scene Uh, the scenes with Neil and his father and how those scenes work if you take them at their most face value or if you take them as something more, whether it's directly about homosexuality or something about like deeply repressed kind of impulses that don't fit in with your normal image of masculinity. Because I think... This movie has some thoughts about that, both on the text and the subtext. Okay. My point here, though, is that when she said that, oh, I think Neil is gay, I said, I don't know, I'm not quite getting the River Phoenix in Stand By Me vibe. Mm. (laughs) Because whenever whenever my family is watching a movie that treads into that territory potentially my brother will say something along the lines of gordy you can be anything you want to be which is the line that river phoenix shares with will wheaton in stand by me they have this like tender moment at the end of the film it's like you can go and be a writer gordy (laughs) just tell your story like we were watching um Ben-Hur and there's some moments between Mursala and Ben-Hur it's like you can be anything you want to be Gordy (laughs) I like this it's a running gag on uh, many I'm guessing any sports movie has this line uttered at some point yeah anytime it's are they or aren't they it's you can be anything you want to be Gordy (laughs) But what Neil gets into, we've been dancing around it, is acting. He decides, on top of everything else he's doing, he wants to try out being a Shakespearean actor. 
and he's pretty much immediately cast as the lead in the local town's production of A Midsummer Night's Dream. He's going to be kind of the pixie puck. So as the story goes along, we don't want to belabor it too much, but these arcs are getting developed. Knox is chasing the girl. Charlie is bucking the system more and more. And Neil is working on this play that he's going to star in against his father's wishes. By the way, I want to point out on uh, <laughs> what we were just discussing that Puck is a fairy and fairy is slang for an effeminate, perhaps gay man. Good point. Maybe. You're right. I, I mean, there is. it can certainly be read that way. In a sense, I come down on the... Dumbledore side it's like you know you can say somebody's gay but until they start like until the act is is committed in flagrante delicto there's there's debate one way or the other well I think there is something to be said for the challenge to the typical masculinity role and that often finds itself hand in hand with People either actually being gay or being viewed as much the same way that someone who is gay is in that they don't fulfill this traditional view of a man as a a masculine controlling force who, you know, is the leave it to beaver dad and was fought in World War Two as these parents were the approximate age to have done. I don't know. I found it I found it evocative and whether or not you want to say he's actually into dudes or not. I think that that is a I don't think it's acting. I think acting is a lens into deeper undercurrents that this film just dips its toe into but doesn't go quite fully into. It's kind of in line with the live your passion, live your own life as opposed to being a conformist. But it's also something slightly different than that, too. And I found it both evocative, but also underdeveloped, I guess. To your point, I guess, that we don't really see much of that explicitly. I could have I could have used a little more fleshing out of that theme. It's kind of all subtext here. But I think you're right. It would fit with the message of be true to your own identity. Let your freak flag fly. <laughs> Charlie certainly lets his freak flag fly. He is the editor of the school paper and one of the most flagrant flaunting of the rules that he does is slips in an editorial to the effect that girls should be admitted to the school. And apparently this is a big deal. Like, I mean, in my mind, an editorial should be the place that out there ideas are floated but apparently this is too controversial because he gets caned for it (laughs) we get this scene you want to talk about homoeroticism there's a there's a paddling of a an adolescent here (laughs) that's interesting i didn't take that read on that but it kind of fits too i don't know it's 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 weird the headmaster has repressed himself But uh, specifically, he publishes this editorial under the name of the Dead Poets Society. So now that is a name that's on the headmaster's radar. And despite the caning, 
Charlie does not rat out any of his compatriots. But the headmaster who, of course, in a Robin Williams movie, it's a common thing that he is the force for unorthodoxy. And we have to have a stickler character who is opposed to that. Uh, a fuddy-duddy who does not brook someone who does funny voices. <laughs> it's like the, the Patch Adams thing. You, you can't. You can't be a clown and a doctor. Tangent on the funny voices. He did a Marlon Brando, but the Brando is very clearly the Godfather. Like at this point, this would have been young Brando. So he would not have done a Godfather Brando. He would have done it on the waterfront Brando. So I thought that was, I hope someone got fired for that blunder. Well, if you've ever seen Aladdin, you know that Robin Williams's imitations don't have to be period accurate. <laughs> That's a good point. No one in 12th century Arabia would know an Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah, that's a good point. The living anachronism. And of course, we get the furthering of Knox's love story plot, which is a little squicky because there's this scene where, like, the girl is passed out at a party and he, he kisses her on her head, which I guess is, is the chastest way to do a non-consensual kiss but ideally you would not do it at all <laughs> well said i agree that was that whole thing was a little bit weird and then she like wakes up and she's completely alert and I, it's not like they were alone they're surrounded by people and people immediately see what he's doing and they're like you can't do that but i guess she comes around to it he he gradually wears her down and so there's various ways to read that but that whole plot was a, a little off for me i mean more than a little off it didn't really add that much and it raised serious questions about the way this character chris was written the the girl that he's into and i don't know i hope there weren't too many boys who modeled themselves off of what Knox did here, but I'm sure there were a couple. One, here's, sorry, just another random thought. I've seen a bunch of movies from the 70s and before that have this, like, make-out room or make-out area where there's, like, multiple couples just, like, in deep embrace and lip-locking. I have never, I mean, I wasn't a big partier, and I guess times have changed, and... It's less taboo for teens to be in private. I've never heard of that being a real thing. I don't know if that's a relic of a pastime or a made-up thing for the movies, but that was kind of odd. I've always assumed I was just never that cool <laughs> to be at one of these parties, but I know that like, even up in the days of Full House, there's like an episode where Stephanie's going to go to her first boy-girl party, and then there's this make-out room. It's the multiple couples together. That's weird. Like, if there's this privacy space where you lock the door, that's one thing. If there's, like, four people on four different couch cushions, that's kind of weird. Well, good to know. I <laughs> Not something that's in my wheelhouse, certainly. So good to know that uh, it, it is strange to you as well. But as things build... We're nearing the night of Neil's performance in the play. 
And on the eve of opening night, his dad comes to visit because he's heard through the grapevine that Neil is acting. And read that how you will, but it's a unapproved extracurricular. His dad wants him to focus just on getting good grades, which he's already doing, but his dad says, no, got to drop out of the play, even though it's tomorrow. Can't do it. And I didn't know the first time I watched this movie, but now I can definitely tell that this is the dad from that 70s show. So if you ever watched that, I have not watched much, but it's it's that actor. I've watched a couple of seasons of it streaming. And the funny thing is, he plays basically the exact same character, but in a sort of comedic parody type perspective, but also with a slightly warmer heart as well in that 70s show. So I, I want to go back and watch some of that 70s show now having seen him in the very serious dark version of this character here we get a moment where neil goes to john what <laughs> not john williams <laughs> we get a moment <laughs> sorry <laughs> i wish although the score here was pretty good but we get a moment where neil goes to robin williams and he says oh man my dad says i can't do the play so what should i do and robin williams says hey, this is really important to you. You should go to your dad and tell him that it's important to you. And Neil's kind of like, oh, um, yeah, I guess I could do that. And ultimately, he does not do that. I, I don't think it would have had any effect if he had. But I guess this is just to show that Neil is deeply uncomfortable with confronting his dad. Factual plot question. He told Keating that he did do that. Why are you sure that he did not do that? Is it ever clarified that he did, in fact, not do that? Or are we just supposed to take the fact that we didn't see it to mean that he didn't do it? I think he did not do it. I think he is too afraid. I think he figures better to ask forgiveness than permission. It's like, I mean, it's tomorrow. So go ahead and do it and, and let the chips fall where they may. And sort things out after the fact, rather than, you know, be locked in my room like a maiden guarded by a dragon or something. Given how pivotal this plot thread ends up being, I really found it weird and annoying that we didn't see this more. That we didn't either see him struggling with whether or not to call his dad or if he did. See, I thought he actually did call his dad. And if he did call his dad, I definitely wanted to see that. Because that's kind of an important thing for this plot. If he didn't, it was framed in a weird way where it was not 100% clear to me that he didn't do it. Maybe there was a line of dialogue or some cue that I missed that we should have been sure that he didn't do it. But that whole thing read as underdeveloped to me. I'm pretty firmly of the mind that he did not call his dad that he is too afraid and decided not to because that's that's the only way it makes sense to me that the dad shows up to check whether or not he did it yeah i i guess that also makes sense like he claimed his dad said if that's what you care about you can go and do it and that wouldn't really align with the subsequent actions either right but the next night it's time for the big show 
Keating and all the boys get together to carpool into town along with Knox's worn-down love interest. And they all pile into cars and head to the theater to see Neil's performance. It's winter, by the way. We get some snow. I always love some good snow when you get snow in the hair of the, the people. It's always visually pleasing to me. Gotta have snow in a boarding school story. Gotta have Christmas at Hogwarts. And the show turns out to be a big success. But Neil's father shows up and is pissed. And he strong arms Neil out of the theater in front of everybody. And they're kind of like, oh, what, what's going on there? And I think this is where Keating puts together that he, that Neil did not actually talk to his father. Or at least that it did not go the way that Neil reported. Right. Because here's our big climactic moment now when they get back to their house. Neil's dad informs him that he's been withdrawn from Welton and he's going to be forced to transfer to a military school with a goal of going to Harvard and then on to medical school. And feeling trapped, Neil kills himself in the night with his father's gun. I think this is one of the bits of symbolism you were talking about. Certainly my mom was talking about it. Oh, he used his father's gun, and maybe he's gay, and just the symbolism of that. Yeah, I think that, well, first of all, you have a note here. Why would it matter if it was military school? It seems like the same thing. And I think that conflict makes a lot more, excuse me, makes a lot more sense if viewed through the lens, not strictly about acting and being a weird kid who's in this weird club at the school, but a more fundamental challenge to the patriarchal, toxic masculinity, kind of got to be a tough guy view of manhood that his dad has. That whole plot twist makes a more makes more sense, or at least why he would react so strongly and why that would be such a strong thing for his dad, thematically at least. I can see that. Um, because what I had been wondering about, listeners, is, you know, he's already at an all-boys boarding school. And how different, necessarily, is a military academy? Although I, I can see that they would have a harsher homophobic view but it's a little different from like in bill and ted's excellent adventure for instance where ted is going to have to go off to military school <laughs> and you've got slacker key slacker stoner keanu reeves facing that down versus someone who's already thriving in prestigious all boys boarding school i have a brief rant my rant is that dead poet society suffers quite a bit from what I call the middle brow slog. And this is the type of movie that just really annoys me. Gets my goat, to use a phrase you used earlier this episode. So this is when a drama, a prestigious drama of some sort, decides it wants to be about some idea. Although the idea is typically quite non-controversial. Something like, racism is bad, or... Repression is bad, or we need to be true to our emotions. And 
doesn't really explore that idea with any ingenuity or or philosophical depth or danger or fun and it often results in kind of these forced unearned dramatic beats and characters who kind of play stock roles and although there are moments of this movie that transcend that middle brow drama slog a lot of it is very much in that wheelhouse and by the way this is one of the reasons that i think biopics are one of the worst genres of film they're almost all middle brow slogs in some way and i don't know like this whole thing with the dad and the the headmaster basically just being plot devices for the repression of these characters and the countering to these ideals that we as viewers are supposed to unquestioningly and fully endorse. I don't know. It's like manipulative or something. And it kind of bugged me. I will say that's not a a criticism against really the acting or the framing of this suicide scene was pretty beautiful and evocative. But one thing is that the, I don't know. I think our views on mental health have evolved a lot in the last 30 years, but it did not feel this goes back to what I was saying earlier about how the character is depicted as kind of this chipper all American light of energy that inspires everyone around him. It does not track that he would just kind of flip a switch and be ready to kill himself without any fight, without any, I don't know, thing that we recognize about this character before that. And it bothered me a lot. I wished that there could have been something that would have made this feel like more than a thing that makes the audience sad. That felt like a thing that was earned within the character arc and the the theme of the movie. It tips its toes in it, but it doesn't it doesn't get nearly far enough for for me at least. Something as big as a really bright and promising teen to commit suicide to actually convey and and be I don't know, more like than eye rolly for me, I guess. It is abrupt. But to inject some light or at least some jocularity here, this moment, the first time I watched the movie, less so now because House isn't on TV anymore, but it made me crack up a little bit because the dad says, you can't be an actor. You're going to drop out of this school and go to the military academy because you have to become a doctor. (laughs) And what role does Robert Sean Leonard grow up to play but Wilson, the second brightest star on House, where indeed he is a successful doctor. He's both an actor and a doctor. Oh, interesting. There's, you know, there's, in fact, in this movie, the dad telling the son that he can't go and be an actor, both of them are actors in a movie, acting. So there's a, a meta aspect to it as well. That's kind of funny. It's like a life imitates art there. You can track this character. It's kind of like how in what one thing you said to me that kind of blew my mind is the usual suspects 
Kevin Spacey could go on to be the character in Seven. That's Kevin Spacey. To spoil both of those movies. Apologies if you've ever seen either of those. But (laughs) that is kind of interesting. But here's the thing. I want to draw your attention to one more thing. Take being an actor in those sentences in this script and replace it with you will not be anything other than the traditional male role model figure that society expects of you. Whether it's you will not be gay, you will not be someone who is comfortable with expressing his emotions. It works a little bit more there than just saying you will not act, you will be doctor, which is a little bit heavy handed. You will never wear tights again. (laughs) This will be the one and only time you will ever wear tights. But to wrap up this story, because I do want to talk about a second film in this episode here. Uh, In the wake of Neil dying, his parents instigate an investigation at the school. They want Welton to get to the bottom of what led to this, because it is abrupt that he suddenly offed himself. And so the fuddy-duddy headmaster gets down to putting the screws to the dead poets and specifically this redheaded member Cameron who hasn't had that much to do in the plot so far ends up being the mole and the rat who leaks what they've been doing to the headmaster it's kind of to save his own skin he pins the blame for what happened squarely on Keating It's Robin Williams' fault that this happened. And he names names, and so all the other Dead Poets members... I don't know if they themselves are Dead Poets. I don't think they ever use that terminology, but it's a useful shorthand. They get dragged into the headmaster's office, and they all sign this form that says, yes, that's what happened, it's all Keating's fault. Fittingly, the last one to get brought in is Todd. And he sees that they've all signed their name on this form. And so he has no choice but to add his name as well. Although I wish this moment here in the headmaster's office was when he quote-unquote found his voice and stood up for himself. Because uh, I really wanted to... If I were in that office, I would call this headmaster a piece of shit and punch him in the teeth. Because it was pretty bad. It was designed to make you angry. Oh my god. I just, it is designed to make your blood boil. Yes. Maybe this comes back to our views on mental health have evolved a lot, but this idea of you must, like, literally, his father is forcing a change in his life and actively telling him this thing that brings him joy he can't do. And they're like trying to dig to find some source of the depression that resulted in his suicide. It's like basically nonsensical at this point. Like, it's just to make you angry. Right. And Charlie punches the rat kid, Cameron, and gets expelled, I guess, for that. Maybe just for being a rebel in general. Yeah, it's kind of tossed out there. He was expelled or whatever it is. Expulsion. But the rest of them are still a part of the system at the end of the movie. They're still at the school. 
But in the final scene, we see the headmaster filling in because Keating has been fired. And the headmaster back in the day was also an English teacher. But while he's leading this uptight version of the class, Keating comes in to collect his effects. And seeing him, Todd jumps up on his desk and yells out, Oh, Captain, my Captain! This is a way of letting Keating know that Todd is still loyal to him. And then the rest of the non-rat members of the Dead Poets who are still there at the school, they jump up on their desks too. And so do a few other students. I don't really know what their skin in the game is, but (laughs) they all get up on the desk and are all shouting, Oh, Captain, my Captain, as the headmaster is saying, Get down! Get off your desks! So it's kind of a cuckoo's nest style ending where we get a feeling that though the protagonist has died, it's brought about this change where now the authoritarian system is cracked and no longer as effective as it once was. Agreed. It's a bit corny, but I did find it stirring. I can see why this is iconic. I wanted to ask you, who do you think makes it out of this story the best with where we leave things? Hmm. I would say anyone who wasn't expelled. Any of the boys there two and a half years from now when you're like a senior or whatever, you're going to be a very different person. You're going to be ready for college. You're going to have graduated from some school where they said something like three quarters of the kids go to Ivy Leagues. I think all those people thrive. And in fact, I think they probably benefit some from the lessons of not being afraid to challenge the authority a little bit. So that's my take. What's yours? I think Charlie got out the best. So kind of the opposite of what she said. Just being out of this toxic system. I think the first time I watched this movie back in college, I was more... I I don't know the word for it. Uh, Just more into that idea that nonconformity is good. Before we wrap tonight, I want to circle back and, and talk about how maybe conformity has its benefits. But... I was just fed up with this system by the end of the film and good to see somebody escape it. I mean, even Neil escapes it in his way. And I suppose, yeah, that's a dark thing. It's a dark thing to say, but I don't know. I I, I have mixed feelings about taking your own life (laughs) to be very potentially controversial. uh, I'm not a psychologist by any means, but I think that's a personal choice i don't think anybody gets to make that choice but you i mean i've heard it as called the ultimate way to control your own destiny i think on a literary basis and a poetic basis there is very much something to that beyond the moral and psychological elements of suicide (laughs) so that's the story of dead poet society 1989 (laughs) we will get a little more into our thoughts on it. Uh, We still need to tote up and measure out a rating. The very thing Robin Williams tells us not to do, we're going to assign a number value to a piece of art. (laughs) But I have one more piece of art for us to consider in the shadow of Dead Poet Society. Uh, If you couldn't tell, that was our film with the violent end. Now let us take a look at a movie with a similar setup and a very different outcome. 
this is 2003's A School of Rock. So School of Rock follows Jack Black as a character named Dewey Flynn. He's a guitarist with a rock band. So which Jack Black movies have you watched, Dan? That's a good question. Uh, definitely the three Kung Fu Pandas. I saw them in the past year. This one, I think I saw Nacho Libre once, but not too many. Yeah, I've seen a handful. Uh, the Goosebumps movie. There's the episode of X-Files. He's in as a kid. He's the bully in NeverEnding Story 3. <laughs> but I enjoyed watching a Jack Black movie right after a Robin Williams movie. I can see them having a similar kind of manic energy. And they, they've got kind of a hairy charm. I can see that. There's definitely very similar components to some of their charm, but to me, the person that it really made me think of when I was watching it this time is Chris Farley. He He's very much in the Chris Farley mold of this, if you're going to talk 90s stars, kind of this big musical over the top, the energy and the nimbleness is very different from what you would expect looking at the physical shape of the person. And that is a large part of the charm of the actor. That's insightful. But Jack Black's character, Dewey, performs with a rock band called No Vacancy. And he doesn't seem to be a perfect fit for the group. In fact, I don't know that he would be a good fit for any group ensemble because his performance seems very self-centered. He's like doing all these trills and just outlandish things that draw attention to himself as distinct from the group. So the way that this opening performance of the movie ends is with him diving out into the crowd and the crowd does not reciprocate. They're not going to bear him up and let him crowd surf and he crashes to the floor and gets injured. And I think this showy nature of his performance and this kind of selfishness in the way he performs is indicative of his character, at least in the early part of the movie. Right, because one interesting thing about School of Rock as compared to Dead Poet Society is School of Rock has arcs for the students, but the main arc that we care about is the teachers, as we will see, but it's the adult in the, the story. It's Jack Black's arc. He starts at this very selfish place that will grow a little bit more refined as the movie goes along. Dewey lives in an apartment with his roommate Ned Schneebly, played by Mike White, as we said before. And Ned was himself a one-time musician. I don't know if they were in a group together, but they both come from this background of being amateur rock musicians. But Ned has now got a marginally more respectable career. He's working as a substitute teacher. And it seems like he gets called up by some fairly well-respected institutions. So he's not a nobody in the world of substitute teaching, but, you know, it's a small pond. Doesn't take a lot to become a substitute teacher. I'll say that Ned Schneebly is the Catalina wine mixer of this movie in the sense that the movie assumes you will take joy in just hearing this ridiculous 
phrase repeated over and over again. But Dewey is not holding up his end of the bargain in this living arrangement. He's not carrying his financial weight. And so Ned and more so his overbearing girlfriend, Patty, played by Sarah Silverman, tell Dewey that he's got to come up with the money to cover his share of the rent or move out. And because of his showy, selfish antics, Dewey gets fired from his band. So the money is not going to come from there now. So this character, Patty, to me is one of the bigger weaknesses of School of Rock. She's very much a misogynistic stereotype of the woman who forces the man to give up his dreams and provide for a family when in fact he just wants to follow his inner spirit. I was kind of disappointed with that because Mike White typically writes women very well. And in fact, he created one of the great female characters of 21st century TV, Amy Jellicoe from Enlightened, as I mentioned earlier, played by Laura Dern in that show. But although I like Sarah Silverman and I think she does the character about as well as the character can be done, that was not the strongest writing point. Yeah, Ned is the henpecked husband archetype, even though they're not married yet. It really seems like something out of comedy of the 40s or even earlier, like Rip Van Winkle or something. Right. Dewey is at home trying to think up ways to make money when a call comes in on the phone. And it's from Horace Green, a prestigious private school. I thought of it as like an elementary school maybe it's a middle school i don't really know at what grade level i don't really know <laughs> let me take a step back i don't really know anything about private school i am very much of the public school system i am a product of that system how old are these kids supposed to be dan so it's funny you mentioned that because i thought a lot about that as this movie went along and it actually does state it pretty clearly so Horace Green is a elementary school. She calls it the best elementary school in the, I forget, state or country or something like that. She's very clear that it's an elementary school. And these are fifth graders. That is mentioned that they're fifth graders. Okay, great. That was what I thought, either fifth or sixth grade. That was what I was thinking. Uh, I missed that part where she said elementary school. Uh, I looked it up, and Miranda Cosgrove was 10, so that much is accurate. I looked up three actors. All of them were 10 or 11 when this was filmed, which kind of astonished me because they look very different in size and age. But to go back to a point that you raised in Last Day of Summer, this is right when some people are hitting their growth spurts and some people are a couple years away, so you start to get people who are a full head taller than others. Right. But this call comes in saying that they need a substitute teacher at Horace Green. And is Ned Schneebly available? Jack Black needing money says, this is Ned Schneebly. And so begins the romp that is School of Rock. And <laughs> this is going to be a recurring theme throughout this movie that when I watched it the first time when I was 13... The implausibility of every single thing that happens did not strike me nearly as much as it did this watch through. I mean, yeah. Jack Black's, Jack Black's whole plan would not get very far at all, I don't think. 
I completely agree. And more alarming is that the way that his conversations with the principal go, that she would ever let him in a classroom. But she does let him in the classroom, and it's off to school for Dewey. (laughs) And he's just kind of thrown into this classroom with a bunch of junior versions of the types of kids that we met in Dead Poets Society. Although of very different colors and genders and uh, shapes and sizes. It's a much more diverse group, is what he's saying, and Dan is right. But nevertheless, it is, in terms of class, you know, that sure, we have a variety of races, we have a variety of genders, we do not have a variety of classes here. Everyone is well-to-do, and everyone has a certain idea that a private school should provide a certain experience and a certain outcome that this should put students on a track to join the elite and be ready for the next stage of education. Early on, Dewey meets the principal of Horace Green, Principal Mullins, who is played by Joan Cusack, who I know as Jessie from the Toy Story movie, starting with two. That's her most famous role for sure. I've seen her in a couple of other things. She was so good in this movie. I did not remember her at all. Like, I vaguely remembered the character. She is so funny, and she has, like, I don't know, Jack Black is just Jack Black, and he's amazing at being Jack Black, but Joan Cusack actually has to act and, like, inhabit a character as written on a script, and she does it so well. She has, like, these ticks where you can kind of see that she's struggling with all the pressure, but also has kind of this inner life and excitement that has needs to come out and kind of does in a plausible, believable, but like compelling manner. I kind of want to say she's the best actress or actor in either of these movies. I don't know. I was, I was really impressed. Right, because it's almost like she's two characters. Her whole conflict is that she has to put on this prim and proper face for the demanding private school parents, but that she is someone else in her private life. Right. But we see now scenes of Mr. Schneebly, so-called, Jack Black and his alias, as a teacher in the classroom. And... He has gone into this with no intention of actually teaching anything. <laughs> I guess he thinks he's just going to sit there in the room. And as long as the students stay in the room, that's going to be the job. And so I don't know how at this initial stage he has any plan or realistic expectation that he's going to keep this job. Because literally the day, the first day he just sits there he sends them out to recess. Like, <laughs> he's not even going to go out there with them, so I don't know where they go. We don't we don't see this day play out. There's a plausibility element that you have to kind of hand wave away. I, I, but I'm with you, though. It's a multi-week gig, and he's just, like, lounging back in his chair. He's like, you guys have recess the whole day. Like, is there? does he really believe that's not going to trickle upwards? 
So I hope as we describe these plots, you're seeing some parallels and, and maybe some differences as well. I mean, one big difference is Jack Black as Dewey is not a teacher. Not a real teacher. Robin Williams, at least, real teacher. But uh, same thing there, though, with Robin Williams is, does he not think these things will trickle up? It's a little bit different, but I see what you're saying. But Jack Black, if we called out every single thing that he does that is implausible, uh, we'll be here all night. (laughs) However, once he sees the student's go to their music class elective he realizes that they have talent that he can appreciate and relate to and exploit (laughs) that's right because what he decides he's going to do is train the students or harness the students as a rock band mostly as a means to get back into the battle of the bands that he would otherwise miss out on because he had been looking forward to being part of this battle of the bands in the no vacancy group that he had just been ousted from. So he assesses the students talents and assigns them different roles that they're going to be responsible for as part of this group, whether that be playing the instruments or singing And he puts other students on other duties, like making costumes and making promotional materials. (laughs) And a whole group of the students are going to be responsible for watching the hall and making sure no one comes in and sees what they're doing. Because, (laughs) like the Dead Poet Society, this whole thing needs to stay hush-hush, including from their parents. Throwback to high school... The marching band that we were both in when our colleague Matt was assigned to be the lookout when the trumpet section that I was in was playing a game of uh, touch football when we were supposed to be doing sectional rehearsals and he was supposed to tell us if someone was coming and he came in after the person who was coming to check up on us. It was the worst lookout job ever. He was like, hey guys, they're here. When they were already in the room. So I, I have appreciation for someone who can actually uh, successfully pull off their lookout responsibilities. But yeah, I, I like the security system they set up using like early, early IMAX. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Just seeing that 2003 Apple tech was a throwback. But this plot point here that you just described where he basically assigns their responsibilities in the band is where we really see what will be kind of the core of this movie, which is just his empathy with the kids and his ability to like find something that spurs them to thrive. And it's just an endless well of joy and gratification watching this movie where he's able to like see when something is bothering someone or like when something is facing a challenge or in their shell in some way and is able to draw them out with just the right words for all his like schluppiness. There's a lot of truth into him being a good educator, like really honestly better than some of the people who would be teachers at this. I studied education. I've read a lot of books on childhood development. 
people who are like given agency to run their own projects, to embrace roles and be a part of a bigger group and like create this thing is like as important or more important than learning content like math or vocabulary or whatever. And this movie is very adept at fitting like real truths about how you empower kids this age into the silliness. Something we haven't said yet is that, yes, both Dan and I have worked as educators, teaching classes, developing classes for a variety of age ranges of students. And I think both of these films have interesting things to say about the merits of different approaches to education. And I jotted down some points about good things and not so good things, specifically about Dewey's teaching approach. So good thing. He genuinely bonds with the students. And like you said, he has empathy for them and can really sense what's going on in their inner lives. So his biggest success is that he encourages them to find themselves through performance to find confidence so there's an overweight student and he says hey i'm overweight and i can still be a performer or there's the the nerdy asian kid and he says you can be a cool guy because you are a musician and musicians are cool that scene with the overweight girl i think tamika is her name that brought me to tears that was really powerful how like body positive he was with her and helped inspire her and then there's this great payoff when her parents see her before him and they like have a moment where they're like brought to tears by it and i don't know that that was great for me but there you're right he gets moments with these with basically all of the kids and like harnesses like empathically the thing that they need and then we have a kid named zach who is kind of a combination of the Todd and the Neil in this story. He starts out a little bit shy and soft-spoken, but he ends up being the songwriter for the group and the, the most prominent creative voice. <laughs> and he's got an uptight father who catches on to a little bit of what Jack Black is trying and is against it. I need to look up that dad because he was just the perfect douchebag overbearing dad. The actor who played him, kudos, because I really wanted to hate that guy so much. Uh, another good thing about Dewey as a teacher, I guess this can be read as a good thing or a bad thing, but he creates a little bit of a power vacuum. Because Jack Black is so childish, somebody really needs to step in and be the adult. And it gives a chance for young Miranda Cosgrove to shine. Her character is named Summer, and she comes to the fore as the band's manager and the one really keeping everybody in line and keeping everything organized. I think a triumph of the film is that these kids who were cast largely because of their musical ability are not dead weight on the screen they're not great by any stretch of the imagination, but they are good, straight performers opposite Jack Black. 
but you can definitely tell Miranda Cosgrove is an actual actor. She shines above the other kid actors and has like, she's funny and she has presence and I don't know. She she's really good as this this summer character who's kind of this uh, type A take control leader. You could tell that she had a future in acting. Agreed. But now for some not so good things. <laughs> We've essentially said it, but everything that Dewey is doing is shady and fraudulent. As a dad, I am adamantly against any authority figures who encourage their kids to keep secrets from their parents. It is an extremely dangerous precedent, and that was like a black mark on this movie for me as I was watching it. That he's like, oh, don't tell your parents about this. They wouldn't get it. They, It's got to be a secret with us. There's a joke at some point that, like, he, he says something like, your kids touched me, and you better believe I touched them, or something like that. And That's his defense when the parents eventually find out, yes. Yeah. And that, in line with his, you got to keep it a secret from everyone, rubbed me a little bit the wrong way. I think if you watch this at an age where you kind of get that this is just like an anarchic madcap comedy, then it's okay. But I don't think I would show this to my three-year-old right now. Like I said, it's a very different watch when you're 13 versus when you're 30. Well, another thing is that Dewey is still very selfish at the start of the movie. And less so as it goes on. But it really stuck out to me this time that he says he's going to be the front man of the band and he's going to be the lead singer. And it really is exploitative, as you mentioned, (laughs) that he's using these students as a vehicle to get himself back on top. And it's only through working with them and realizing that they really are individual people with their own strengths and personalities that he kind of comes to earth a little bit and gets a little more humanized himself. There's this darkly comic masterpiece moment of the film where Jack Black is sharing this song that he assumes they're all going to perform at the Battle of the Bands as a band. And it's like the legend of the rent and he has to pay this rent. And I remember watching this when I was like, I don't know, whenever it came out, I was about 15 or 16 and just like kind of viscerally getting that this was him being seedy and like selfish, but it really stuck out to me this time, except it played as very funny to me. I was cracking up as he was like singing about (laughs) how he was out of the band and how he, the legend of the rent he had to pay and stuff. It's a wild moment. He he gets to kind of go out there with some of the stuff in this, this film. Yeah, one thing I noticed in this movie is there are a lot of very long single takes. The first shot of the movie is a long single take, almost like Goodfellas, as it goes into this rock club. But then even when the student groups are playing, you get these long takes of their performances uninterrupted. So... These kids have some chops. So I talked early on about some Linklater style cues, and I think you touched on some of them. 
the authenticity of the actual performance of the music is so crucial to the success of the film. Like actually believing these kids are performing and this movie nails it in the same way that it nailed the different vibes in everybody wants some when link later was showing them at a disco or showing them at a country bar or whatever. There's just something believable about these performances. And I think I read that in most of the on film stuff, the characters were actually performing the things that we were seeing. And that is a very non-trivial, non-normal thing in things like this. If you ever see a piano player in a movie, do yourself a favor and don't look at their hands because their hands are just going to be a very clear giveaway that they're not actually playing the thing that they're supposed to be playing. And this avoided that miraculously. And I agree with you. It's There's some dedication to depicting the actual students and their performance that goes beyond what could have been just a silly comedy here. And as this is going on, Dewey is also gradually bonding with Principal Mullins, Joan Cusack. And in one scene, he has heard that when she drinks, she becomes a different person and her her inner personality comes to the fore. And it's easier to ask her for favors and things. (laughs) So he manages to get her to a bar where she gets drunk cartoonishly on like half of one glass of beer it's so great she like picks it up with both hands the way you would like a tea mug or something like that and sips it and stevie nicks comes on and she gets in the zone it's pretty great it's it's just great by joan cusack and she admits that she kind of chafes under the demands of these school parents they have obviously expectations of what uh, fancy school should provide. Uh, side note that they keep saying that the school costs $15,000 a year. I wonder how that compares, you know, $15,000 in 2003 versus 2021. I've been reading about some other schools and school in general. I mean, when it comes to colleges, anything that's got tuition, it just is all very expensive Where, wherever you go. And honestly, it sounds like it could just be a drop in the bucket compared to some places. That would be considered a bargain school, private school these days, at least in our area. I mean, granted, it's 20 years and there's inflation and all that, but the private school that I've had my eye on uh, is probably too expensive for me to send my kids there is $33,000 up through fifth grade. So that would be this and $39,000 up through eighth grade. So, I mean, just do the math on that compared to 15,000. And it's kind of brought out there as like this, oh my, 15,000 a year. Can you believe that? But I was like, man, if if I could send my kids to a private school of this level of prestige for $15,000 a year, that would be a bargain. Okay, good. That was kind of the feeling I got as well. I sent you a thought piece article that I read in the lead up to our episode this week. And that was talking about a school that was $45,000 a year. So uh, I think that was a a high school, but certainly there's a range to these things and it could easily be much more than $15,000. Another thing that was very Linklater to me, Linklater is amazing at shooting shots in cars and like actually feeling that you are in the car. 
And whenever we're in this van, I just loved it. He's got this stereotypical kind of rocker, old school beat up van. I think it's got like spray paint on the side or whatever, like a design on it. And we get a bunch of scenes where he's driving someone in this van or more people in this van. And I always loved the, the direction inside this van. That to me <laughs> struck out as distinctly link later. But with the principal kind of under the influence, Dewey is able to eke out from her a sort of semi-approval that he's going to take his class on a quote-unquote field trip. But before they're able to go to the show, Ned receives a paycheck from Horace Green because obviously Dewey's been under the alias of Ned Schneebly working at the school. And now Ned knows, and more importantly, Patty, the confrontational, uh, outdated, shrew stereotype, knows. And she immediately calls the police and puts the kibosh on Dewey's fraud. So the cops barge in on Dewey when he's leading a parent-teacher conference, and everything kind of comes to the head at once. Because the, the parents are asking, you know, logical, reasonable questions about why haven't the kids been doing any real work? Why are they being secretive about what goes on in class? <laughs> and this is when he gets the line of, your kids have touched me, and I'm pretty sure I've touched them. And so Dewey gets chased out of the school by policemen and a bunch of outraged parents. And somehow the next day rolls around and he is not in jail. He's just back at his apartment, his ruse having been brought to light. But this next morning, uh, all the adults at the school are distracted because there's a mob of parents haranguing them. And in this environment, the students decide that they are going to sneak out. And they already have a charter bus scheduled, so they all climb aboard the bus and they go and they track Dewey down at his apartment. And everyone is able to go and get to the show. So just like in Dead Poet Society, here we have a climactic moment where everybody is getting together and they're all heading off to a venue to see a performance. Similarly, we get a big relationship moment in both. Because in Dead Poet Society, Knox and the girl he's been wearing down finally, I guess, get together to go see the show. And here in School of Rock, Ned breaks it off with Patty because she doesn't want him to go see the show and he wants to go see the show. So now here here he is seizing the day and he's going to be his own boss. There's some history there where Ned <laughs> had some past as have some line for what it is like a satanic sex god or something like that but he used to be in the same band as jack black's character and so that is the true inner self that this regressive female character played by sarah silverman is is holding back but the parents and school staff catch on that all the students are suddenly gone and they track them down at the venue for the Battle of the Bands, where, in fact, the group does put on an excellent performance. 
we get this really show-stopping rendition of Zach's song, and they're singing essentially about what they're doing, about how they are the school of rock. Talk about a great climactic song compared to The Last Day of Summer, where the song that we had kind of built up to the whole movie was just a total wet fart. Here it was like actually exciting and stirring and like played off on all of the buildup with all of these characters. Really well done. I was really impressed. And it's just a happy, exciting moment. Like it makes you smile. And what do you know? The parents are into it. <laughs> They're won over. They're charmed, despite everything that's happened. And we get a different ending. Not the Dead Poet Society ending. And in fact, Dewey gets to crowd surf. He dives out and people carry him along. And we get kind of a Marvel-style credit scene where we see that obviously Dewey is not going to get away with being a real teacher or even a substitute teacher because he's not accredited. But the School of Rock becomes a successful after-school program. You know, a place for students to have an, ex an extracurricular activity in the afternoons where Dewey is going to get to continue teaching the students he's been working with. And in fact, it's so successful that Ned starts working there too, teaching the junior class. And these types of programs really exist. The company that we have both taught at partnered with a similar one for a couple of years and offered classes like this. So I don't know whether it was inspired by this or it's something that has always existed, but uh, that, that is a real uh, small business that one could operate. So, finally, a touch of realism here <laughs> as we depart. So, those are our two films, Dead Poet Society and School of Rock. I wanted to take a quick blow-by-blow blow through some of the commonalities that I recognized. Obviously, you've got an eccentric teacher taking a job at a prestigious private school where their unorthodox lessons are going to conflict with the uptight norms of the school right and encourage their students to be more in touch with their true inner selves and the class is focused on creative expression so uh, in a sense i mean what would you expect one is a poetry class and one gets hijacked and becomes a rock band class uh, side note would you take this rock band class if it was like a college elective? I think I I would personally not take it because I don't know. I've had a lot of things called to me through the years of passions, but being a rock star, embracing the ideals of rock and roll as espoused by Jack Black has never been something that has called to me. So then what one of these rock and roll things becomes is a prettied up, trying to be cool version of any class, band class or orchestra class, where you have these collaborations across a wide variety of instruments performing pieces. So I don't know. I've seen things like this and been not crazy sold on them. But I also can buy that this would be something that would 
call to you and would be compelling to you. And if one of my daughters at age 11 or whatever was like, I want to learn how to play bass guitar and be awesome at bass or guitar or drums or something, I could see supporting them and, and signing them up for a class like this. I think it could have legs. I think it could work, obviously, as an elective and not... <laughs> as something that has hijacked and replaced all other curricula. But I mean, it, it, it seems like it has some academic value. He talks about like differences in genres and how one performer influenced another and it, it branched. It's, it's in a sense like a musicology class. Oh yeah, definitely. And I don't want to understate the value of, of something where kids take their own agency over a project that they're in charge of. There's a framework of learning through elementary school called Tools of the Mind that is uh, based off of this educational philosopher named Vygotsky, who basically said that kids learn the most when they, in conjunction with an empowering teacher, undertake their own roles in their own projects and see them through to completion. And that theory, which I embrace, is actually kind of reflected here. And I think that's cool. And I, I buy it. There, There is value in both the musical aspect and the creative aspect, but like the way that he sets up the class where they're all a team and all in charge of certain things on their own, but part of a bigger whole is, is a very real approach to education a couple other bullet points to hit in terms of commonalities you've got a star at the center with kind of a manic charisma robin williams in one and jack black in the other i'm gonna call this the jumanji factor who do you think was better like which performance was better or is that a spoiler for your your future notes no this is a this is a great question uh I think you could dismissively read both performances as saying, oh, this is Robin Williams being Robin Williams, or this is Jack Black being Jack Black. More so in the case of Jack Black, Robin Williams is trying to put a veneer on, but there are a few moments where it just bleeds out and he is doing impressions. Right. This is maybe not quite as transformative a role as like uh, goodwill hunting right but uh it, it's good it's memorable i think i would go with robin williams I, when i when i level my rating at the end i find dead poet society a little more memorable i think it's managed to be a little more timeless but i guess a few more decades will tell uh, what do you think i think your observations are astute and i mostly agree with them but I come out on the side of Jack Black because I ask myself, who is more irreplaceable? Who brings more actually to the film? I mean, sure, Jack Black is playing Jack Black, but there also is no other Jack Black. So, I mean, this is like an eternal debate in film analysis. How do you value characters who play the same type of thing that kind of matches their own personality as opposed to people who are more character actors and adopt different characters and like what, what is the qualitative value of those different things. But to me, I just cannot imagine 
School of Rock with literally any other actor having the movie work the way that it does with the same energy, the same vivacity to it. Robin Williams, on the other hand, he's good. And he does some things that he is best at. But you can also replace him with basically any good actor. And it's the same movie. And so that's why I come out on Jack Black as the more impressive and crucial performance. I think I agree in terms of this specific Robin Williams role. That other people could have played this part and it would have been as good a movie. Uh, I was reading that originally Liam Neeson was in talks to play the part. Interesting. Which I, I can I can imagine a version of this movie where it's Liam Neeson as the teacher and River Phoenix as Neil, and it is maybe an even better movie. But I don't think overall Robin Williams could have been replaced by anybody else. Robin Williams was a unique performer, and we've already talked at length here, but... I think it's interesting to consider that Dead Poets Society is a movie that ends with a suicide and Robin Williams would end up taking his own life. Just looking back in that mindset post-2014, it makes the movie have a different impact. Uh, Robin Williams was the only celebrity death that really impacted me, and I, when I heard that news, I was very upset because... I don't think it's uh, groundbreaking or controversial to say that a lot of comedians deal with depression. Uh, I think that's known by this point. But still, to have someone who is presented as this zany figure who has a childlike energy and is prominent in media aimed at children then turn out to have struggles that end with him not being able to find joy and not being able to carry on in the world and not being able to find the light that he is supposedly shining is very tough to process. I agree. I think that's a compelling observation very much. There's a movie by Judd Apatow, directed and written by Judd Apatow, starring Adam Sandler called Funny People. And the title has two angles on it. One is these are it's it's about comedians, so they're funny people, but they're everyone in who is depicted is like a little bit off. Many of them are depressed or lonely or have trouble connecting with other people because they see the world in their own specific way. So in that way they're all kind of funny people. And I think that that is evocative in many of the ways that you have described. Some more similarities. Both teachers preach nonconformity. Robin Williams, as John Keating, is all about carpe diem. And Jack Black, his message is stick it to the man. He keeps saying that rock is all about sticking it to the man. Uh, both teachers create clubs that need to be kept secret. Both teachers crowd surf. At one point, uh, Mr. Keating gets carried around by the kids, gets carried around the soccer field up on their shoulders like Rudy. And I saw some specific character parallels between the two movies. Guitarist Zach in School of Rock reminded me of Neil Perry. He's got the disapproving authoritarian father. <laughs> and I snort laughed 
because there's one moment in this movie where Jack Black refers to Zack as Kurt Cobain. <laughs> he says, hey, Kurt Cobain. <laughs> and of course, Kurt Cobain also died by shooting himself. So uh, I, uh, there are some conspiracy theorists uh, around that event, if you read the Death of Kurt Cobain Wikipedia article, but uh, generally accepted as a suicide. So that that would come up when looking at this character, I thought was uh, darkly humorous, considering our thought exercise today. There's also a drummer kid that we haven't mentioned yet named Freddy, who kind of embraces a punk lifestyle and starts wearing a unorthodox uniform and spikes his hair and so i saw that as him really embracing the countercultural aspect of this movement in a similar way to charlie in dead poet society i i liked this character in school of rock because he's such a little shithead and you know that he's a shithead but he still is won over by jack black's character and I don't know, this This wrong is true to me that the quote-unquote cool teacher is able to connect with like the offbeat, annoying-ass kids who sit in the back of the room. And I, I enjoyed that. And there's a really great scene where the principal, the Joan Cusack character, is like, roll down your sleeves. Why, Freddie, you can't do, spike your hair. And, he, and then... An, Another kid says, Ms. Mullins, you're the man. And given everything that we've heard about, stick it to the man, but also the phrase, you're the man, clashing. She says, oh, thank you very much. And to me, that was one of the bigger laughs. But now for some differences. It's worth noting that these two schools have students of different ages. Dead Poets Society is focused on a senior class so they're all 18 about to go to college and in school of rock it's a bunch of 10 year olds so already that's a big difference but i i think it's also interesting to think about the difference between like a teenager in the 50s and a teenager in the 2000s e even if they were even if they were closer in age there would still be a difference like somebody who was 16 in 1950 and somebody who's 16 in 2000 is a world of difference i agree i think this comes back to some of the messaging that we get on conformity and gender roles and and repressing your urges as opposed to embracing your inner self and of course we touched on it but another difference is that there's outright fraud going on in School of Rock. <laughs> Jack Black is not a teacher at all, whereas Keating actually has done the training and has the certificates that he needs and a history in academia. And of course, one difference I think we have to acknowledge, loathe as I might be to admit it, one of these movies is a comedy and one of these movies is a drama. So... Uh, they're trying to accomplish different things, trying to make the audience feel different ways. But the point of Violent Ends is to think about how things can start out one way, arrive at very different endpoints. So our final difference is that there's no suicide at the end of School of Rock. <laughs> and there's no joyous call for an encore at the end of Dead Poet Society. 
No, no celebration of this teacher's eccentric but effective methods. And so, what if we swapped these endings? What would the effect be, Dan? Mm, okay. So, let's start with School of Rock. Jack Black overdoses on opioids after he gets fired and he's told he has to move out of his apartment and he doesn't have a band or anything. And the kids come and try to find him the next day, but he doesn't wake up when they come to stir him to bring him onto the school bus to go to the show. And it becomes a very morbid moment. And these kids kind of all go back to their gray, repressed lives. And they look back on that time. Remember that time we had that crazy-ass teacher? It would be like a Reddit thread is what it would be. You know how they have, like, what was the weirdest thing that happened at your school and they'd be like well we had this really weird teacher he was a sub he wanted us to go perform this song at a battle of the bands and we went to go find him and he was dead in his bed he had overdosed and he would become like kind of a weird footnote as opposed to a springing board for the rest of their expressive lives and i think that would be a very uh darker ending it should go without saying <laughs> So your take on it is a lot more creative than what I was thinking. I, I really like that uh, fan fiction. <laughs> I was just wondering who it would be who would kill themselves, whether it would be Guitar Kid or Pianist Kid or, for a real twist, Miranda Cosgrove. Oh, man. I didn't even think about the kids. I guess that would be the same role. I like yours a little more, though. <laughs> it's a little more, <laughs> a little more plausible ending. Uh, maybe, maybe not much, but I, I could picture it in my head. And then on the flip side, we have, what if the dad comes and he sees Puck frolicking around and making goo-goo eyes of the other boys on stage and says, you know what? I embrace you, my son. This is what you are, and I accept you for that. And instead, he becomes one of the great actors of his generation because he's got all the support of a great, funding of a private school, a family that'll that'll stick up for him. And I could see him appearing in movies, you know? I could see him being maybe like a, in the same way that this actor that played him was a an actor who's appeared in a few things. That, that could be what this guy was in, in, in some alternate universe. In that universe, Keating is probably not fired, but I see him getting bored after like two or three years or clashing too much with the culture and going and moving out to California where they're smoking pot and they're chilling out and they're embracing the the hippie, the pre-hippie, I suppose, vibe. And I think he'd be all about that there, like banging your bongos and, and narrating. And I think that's what would happen. He's going to join a band with Charlie. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. Anything you want to add to, to those? What, what do you think would be different? I think it's harder to picture Dead Poets Society with a happy ending. Uh, <laughs> it would just kind of be anticlimactic. It's like Keating still gets to teach. Uh, I guess if they were really appreciative of his methods, maybe things start to change at the school. I would be interested to know what year Welton finally does admit girls. Like, how, how far into the future does that change take place? Interesting. Because are... I'm, I'm sure it did. I, and, and I think by 2003, we'd have demographics looking more like School of Rock. 
There are still plenty of schools that are one gender, but it is increasingly rare. So I think it is certainly plausible that it could go co-ed. You know, it was a big deal when I just know this because my parents went there. When Notre Dame, it was like the big Catholic boys college, men college, went co-ed. I do feel like it could have happened at some point. And I think you're right. I think maybe 90s, late 80s, 90s, something like that, it would have happened. Mm-hmm. I think of it, this is neither here nor there. It might be my own bias. I think of it more as like an all boys academy having to admit girls would change before an all girls academy having to admit boys changed. I don't know. There could still be all boys schools. I know for sure there's still all girls schools, but in much the same way, there are historically black colleges. Like if you're kind of a minority element, there's, it's easier to still today embrace that identity element and have that be a uh, kind of identifying component of your school. Uh, we have other business to attend to, but I wanted to shout out a couple other uh, boarding school stories that uh, seemed a little bit pertinent. This gave me some Harry Potter vibes. Uh, as a pub- as a product of the public school system, uh, my main exposure to what it's like to go to private school is just reading the Harry Potter books. Uh <laughs> The idea of one of the big things that you do is you sneak around after hours. That's definitely a big part of Harry Potter. Uh, I think Harry Potter would join the Dead Poet Society. I agree. I mean, what is Dumbledore's army from the fifth book other than Dead Poet Society? Right, yeah. Showing your loyalty to a charismatic, unconventional teacher. Who doesn't actually know of the group but has to take the blame for it when the authority comes calling. Yeah, he gets fired, and they do everything short of climbing up on their desks and saying, oh, captain, my captain. (laughs) But it also made me think a little bit of the wave or the third wave. Did you ever read or watch any of the adaptations of that story, which I guess is a true story? I think I read it in high school or maybe middle school. But for anybody who has not been exposed to this story, there was... This experiment that a high school teacher ran, I think in the 60s, where he was struggling to explain to students how people could get caught up in a fascist movement. And so what he did was he created this secret society that he was going to induct his students into that he called The Wave. And it had, like, secret handshakes and gestures and catchphrases that only the members of the group would share and they would kind of mutually celebrate the things that made them distinct as a group you know shun the outsiders and that growing together as this group he was able to like even turn them to violence against people outside of the group to the point that at the end of the story he like brings everybody together for a a wave rally And he says that he's going to announce that this movement has actually been taking place in schools all over the country. And even adults are in on it. And they've nominated a candidate for the presidency who's going to be the leader of this wave party. And everybody gets to the auditorium at the end. 
and there's a big video of Hitler up on the projector screen. And he says, this is your candidate. This is your leader. The, the lesson is that anybody could potentially be a Nazi or fall into that same trap of being captivated by a populist and a fascist. So, <laughs> Dead Poet Society and School of Rock do not go that far. But in a sense, it's that message that charisma could lead you astray within a school environment. Yeah, I think that's compelling. I mean, anything where you have a cult of personality, it's two sides of a coin. It's someone who inspires someone else to be more than they would be. But also it's like in reverence to that person. And I think there's some rule. I forget what the rule is on the internet where any discussion that's a disagreement will ultimately result in Hitler comparisons. And so I kind of roll my eyes a little bit at anything that says that if you embrace anything, you're essentially embracing Hitler at that point. Right. But I, I think it is compelling. It is, I don't know, kind of thought provoking to see that, it's a slippery slope to embrace an idea of nonconformity, particularly it's almost like its own version of conformity, but in a different way. Right. In that case, I think they are embracing conformity. Uh, but I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say that both Keating and Dewey Flynn have cults of personality that they build. Right. And how that, <laughs> that leads to, people kind of stepping beyond what are their normal inhibitions to kind of new areas, how that is something that can be for both good and for ill. Exactly. So that brings us to one last question that I wanted to throw at you before we try to put ratings on these films and, and put this whole thing to bed. Is Mr. Keating blameless? They peg responsibility for what goes down in dead poet society on him and he kind of gets run out of town on a rail which does not happen to jack black but is there something to be said for conformity and the way that private schools put students on a path to an idea of success i will admit that as a parent i haven't really thought through the ethics and responsibility of adults at a boarding school to me the complicating factor here or kind of like the central question is who is the individual or number of individuals who is responsible for caring for and nurturing these students and i think when you're in something like a boarding school that becomes very muddied to the point where there is kind of no one. And if there's a systemic failure, when there's no parental figure, then everyone becomes the parental figure. And if everyone is partially a parental figure, then really nobody actually is. But when someone steps up to try and be that, it kind of becomes again, two things. It's like both heroic in the sense that, they are crafting a vision for this person, but also selfish in the sense that 
they are the one out of all of these people who is the one who is daring to try and forge a one-on-one connection with this student and like forming their thoughts as they are coming of age when I don't know, like if I was a parent, I would want to be the guiding light on that. But by sending them to a boarding school, it gets very complex. I think he is definitely not blameless, but my reading of the film is that if you look at that and say that Keating is the reason that he was driven to suicide, then you are vastly simplifying and misappropriating what was going on. If you watch that movie, Keating has the ideas where you need to embrace yourself. And he even has this idea, oh, I used to run this thing called the Dead Poets Society, wink, wink. But they kind of run with it and they kind of do it themselves. That's not Keating. Keating may be like a light to them, but he's not the one driving them. And so I don't think he's blameless, but I also don't think he is the central antagonistic force or the central one that you blame for what happened. I think it's far more about the repression and the failure of the system to acknowledge the complex individual, the school and the parent in that case. What about you? What do you think? Good answer. So my view on it has definitely changed. The first time I watched it, I was very pro-Keating, very pro-nonconformity. I can kind of see the other side now. There's a movie that I'm thinking of. I haven't actually seen the movie. I've just read about it, and so I don't remember what film it is. It might be Caddyshack 2. It might be a different movie. But (laughs) stick with me. The story is that some quirky guy is rubbing up against the stiff upper crust at this golf course. And what the zany character wants to do is replace the golf course with a giant mini golf course. So what I'm getting at here is that it's the idea of nonconformity and fun and fancy is what's valuable and not stodgy upper-class strictures. But people who go to a golf course or a country club or a yacht race or a steeplechase (laughs) see value in tradition and in doing things a certain way and they're there for a reason. So people who send their kids to these prestigious schools are doing it for a reason and they want that tradition and they want success for their children and see this as a means of realizing that goal. So coming in and smashing things up just to smash things up is maybe not the greatest goal unto itself. I think it is a little more complicated than just doing your own thing is good. I agree with that. I think Dead Poets Society in particular plays that out where we see that people acting on their own impulses in and of itself is not a valuable thing or is at least a dangerous thing. When Charlie posts the newspaper thing 
or when things start to get out of hand with the acting and with the girls, with Knox and all that, it it just seems like things kind of take a step beyond a kind of self-exploratory thing to an overindulgent thing. And I think there is a fine line there that is hard to articulate to a 15-year-old. Yeah, I can see that. The last thing I wanted to talk about, very last thing before we do our ratings, is Dead Poet Society is at least at the very barest minimum level based on a true story because the writer of the screenplay drew influence from a real teacher that he had at a boys' school. Did you know this? I did not. I only found out doing the research for this episode, but apparently there was a real teacher named Samuel Pickering who was a teacher, uh, a one-time student and later a teacher at the Montgomery Bell Academy in Tennessee where the screenwriter of this film, Tom Shulman, had him as a teacher. And I guess Shulman was really captivated by the eccentric, quirky methods of Pickering. I guess Pickering really did some of these exercises. But what's funny is the article has quotes from Pickering, and Pickering says he often considered his teaching style purely purposeless and impulsive, and he criticizes those who have subsequently asked him about his philosophy on education. He has responded that mostly it's all meaningless, and I don't know why people want answers. (laughs) The quote that I really liked is, he said he did these things mostly just to entertain himself. And... I don't know how how to read that exactly. Like, it could just be that you've hit on something that works and that is, you know, worthwhile both for teacher and student. And that's not just shooting the shit, but, you know, it's an enjoyment that stems from genuinely doing your job well. So, I, I don't know. But I think it is interesting to hear him say that. That it wasn't some deep goal. He was just trying to have fun. I think that's per- perhaps telling of the movie itself. What I perceive to be elements of shallowness that it would perhaps consider depth, darkness, and drama. Well, then I think we're in a good place to do some rating here. Based on everything we've just talked about, is Dead Poet Society good? All right, Brian, write down your number so that we know that it's not impacted Okay, I'll say that I wrote down a number at the start of tonight. Okay. Uh, our our talking has colored my judgment a little bit. Maybe if we revisit, say, at a future spectacular, I might change this number. But I'm going to go ahead with what uh, I entered tonight, having written. So, I was, for both films, I was torn between two ratings. And I'm going to go with the slightly more extreme rating for each of those. I'm going to give Dead Poet Society a level four good-ish because I feel that it is compelling in many of the things that it depicts and in many of its formal elements, including acting, cinematography. But I feel as if the thing that it wants us to pay attention to, the suicide at the end of the film, 
everything that leads to that and the fallout of that is problematic and is, as previously mentioned, a bit of a middle brow slog. And for that reason, I came away with more of a sour taste than the craft would otherwise indicate. So for me, lots of things I liked, lots of elements that I appreciated, lots of specific things that I admired. Ultimately, I was just south of the good region in whole. That is a four out of eight for me on Dead Poet Society. Well, I agree that, especially watching it this time, what you've called the middle brow slog stuck out to me as well, and it's what holds back the movie a little in my judgment. Just that you could read it as phony, uh, schmaltzy, mock sentimentality, that it's really trying to rise above its station and and become a classic. That said, I think it has kind of succeeded. I think it is in the zeitgeist and in the cultural awareness even if people have not seen this movie you're going to know lines from it you're going to know oh captain my captain with the standing on the desk uh you're going to know carpe diem at least i think you will which is why i am going to pin the the very lowest marginal just slipped in under the wire six on this I think it is worthy of very good because of how it sticks in your memory. Whether that is fully earned, I don't know. I think we've done a good job of dissecting it here tonight. But I think people are going to still be watching Dead Poet Society decades from now. Uh, I think it came, I don't know, at the right time. I just, I think it, maybe I'm not doing the best job explaining myself, but it... it fill the niche like this is the uptight boarding school movie for me i think that's fair i think there's a take on this film where it succeeds in its objectives and connects in a way that other films don't in that regard so it's it's not a seven it's not an eight but it is iconic i think one of the ways in which it truly earns a high status is the cinematography they picked a great venue for this school. The grounds are just awesome to look at. And so that's my rating, six. I will say that that is borne out by the IMDb and Letterboxd ratings, which are both really high. It's in the IMDb top 250, number 208, an 8.1, which is exceptionally high for an IMDb film. And it's also a 4.1 on Letterboxd. So... That is also really high, much higher than other movies that I personally consider better. So I would say that I would be more likely to be in the minority than you would be. Now, what about the second film that we've considered, School of Rock? Where does that fall for you? This was really tough for me. The thing that I just couldn't floss out of my gums was this seediness of Jack Black's character. And... That bothered me <laughs> as a dad more than I care to admit as someone who pays for a not inexpensive preschool and has at least considered the idea of paying for a not inexpensive private elementary school. But I think 
the movie cultivates a sort of, I don't know if anarchy is the right word, but a spirit that transcends those concerns that lives in its own sort of fantasy realm. And there's so many things I admire about this movie. I think it's really funny. I think the fact that it centered around kids, but the kids don't really bog the movie down at all. That Jack Black is just this, just the supernova of energy is really admirable. And it's really rousing and fun and exciting. And the story is pretty watertight. Like all of the beats have a purpose. Joan Cusack is awesome. The music is really good. You can tell the people who wrote this and acted this actually loved rock music and built that into the DNA of the movie. It's implausible, sure, but it's a joyful watch. And while I cannot look at Dead Poets Society and say that I want to go through that experience again, I can unashamedly say School of Rock is a winning experience, a rousing, fun, exciting experience that I want to watch again, that I want to share with people I know, my kids, my wife. I want to watch it. And in that spirit, I'm on the line between a six and a seven, and I'm just going to go for it. I'm going to give this a seven and exceptionally good. I think this movie succeeds at just about everything it tries to do. I think it's rewatchable. I think it's a great film. I think it's it's a family film for the ages that, that I will keep watching for the rest of my life. And it's not perfect, but it is a blast. And that's kind of what I care about here. It's well made. Linklater is awesome in it, and I'm going to keep watching it and keep enjoying it. All right. Well, I will say that our discussion here has cooled me on Dead Poet Society a little bit and elevated School of Rock a little bit. But as I said, I'm coming in with the numbers that I jotted down, my, my secret closed envelope before we started our broadcast. And I have got School of Rock at a five, a good. Uh, it is enjoyable to me. Nothing bad to say really about this movie. Although I've mentioned it's a very different watch at 31 than at 13. Again, as a teenager, I, I really enjoyed Jack Black's uh, anarchy, as you said, and his spirit of sticking it to the man. Whereas here, what really struck me is the vast improbability of everything that's happening. <laughs> he would not get as far into this, maybe 10% as far as he manages to do. And I doubt it would be as embraced as fully. I think once the cops got involved, the story ends. <laughs> Dewey does nothing past that point other than sit in a cell for a while. But that's why it's so stirring when, and exciting and inspiring when the kids come to, to bring him to the, the rock show. I will say the music is great. The way that it's shot and edited is excellent in a way that I had not appreciated before. I love the long takes. Love that the performances are real. And the casting is impeccable. Jack Black, of course. Joan Cusack is very good. But all the students pretty much across the board pull their weight. They're all compelling 
in doing what they need to do, and it tells a good story. So this for me is a five, but it's a high five. I say good with potential to rise uh, as the years pass. I can respect that for sure. We didn't talk much about Jack Black's theory of rock and roll and how he it's almost like a religion for him. I liked how universal and inclusive it was and how it lifted everyone up and how it was pretty implausibly desexualized. Like rock and roll is very much has a sexual history from the start. Anytime you've embraced rock and roll or whatever the latest rock and roll thing is, there have been authority figures saying, oh, they're just horny teens. They're just rabble rousers. Right, sex sex and drugs. And this movie kind of strips away from it. And to the movie's credit, it lets you forget that, mostly. There was a couple moments where I was like, I don't know, they showed off these outfits that they were proposing, and it was like a tight, glittery dress for one of the girls. And I was like, hmm, they're 10 years old here, and this is shining a light on the fact that rock and roll has that history and that kind of lines up with some of the other weirdness of the Jack Black character as an authority figure. But I think this is the kind of movie where you don't think too much about it and you embrace the things that it embraces. And maybe it's just me, but I was able to get on that wavelength. I think I'll probably spin the soundtrack after this. So good things to take away for sure. I've enjoyed reviewing these movies with you. Hope it was a good experience taking a dive through them. It was. And I hope you've enjoyed listening as well, audience out there, whatever form you take. I don't know if it's big enough of an audience for me to dive out and be upheld for a <laughs> round of crowd surfing. I don't know if anyone would be standing up on their desks and, and shouting their loyalty to us as content producers, but I hope so think we've done something worthwhile tonight o'brien my brian and i hope that uh if you like what we're doing you subscribe and that you more importantly feel inspired to do your own thing creatively if you've got an idea in your head realize it seize the day because time is fleeting uh so dan what is next for us here on the goods thank you for letting me break free of the strictures of time loops and really be myself. Uh, now I want to know what's next from you. So so we are approaching the end of March 2021. We're in the second half of it as we record here. And next week we will record in, depending on your county, in the second last week or last full week of March. And we are approaching April Fool's Day. And I think for... The episode after the next one, we might have some fun April Fool's Day ideas, but there's a movie I've been wanting to watch that is approximately in the realm of trickery that I would like for both of us to watch and talk about. And that is the movie called F for Fake, co-written, directed by, and starring Orson Welles. That is the extent of what I know about this film, except that it has to do with trickery and deception. And for that reason, I thought it might be a fun April Fool's Day adjacent film for us to watch and discuss. So that's my pick, the 1973 F for Fake.
I look forward to it. We haven't talked Orson Welles yet, and I have some fun tidbits to share, even though I also know nothing about F for Fake. So I'll look forward to discussing that with you next week, Brian. Yes, let's all discover it together, listeners, and I hope you join us again here on The Goods.